0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Live.
1: Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. You know, it was always a horrible story, but now that you start to hear some of the details behind it, it, it gets even worse. On, on yesterday's program, we talked about. One of the latest, I say one of the latest because you can't keep track of how many police chases there are with people who've committed crimes and running from the cops and horrible, horrific accidents or collisions that are caused. But we we talked about one of the most recent ones that happened 730 Sunday evening. You will remember the story. It starts on like 11th and center, 20 minutes or 10 minutes before that. The police had received a report that there had been an armed robbery and a car that had been stolen. OK, so 10 minutes later on 11th and center, they, they see that this car that has been stolen, that's the people in it are wanted for armed robbery. They do what they always do. They put on the bubble lights and what is now common in Milwaukee, people run. So the car takes off on the cops and there is a brief high-speed chase. It starts on like 10th and center, it ends on like 20th and north, and it ends when the car that is fleeing the police smashes into another car in that intersection. The passenger in that car is killed. The driver of that car, um, and I'm going to call it the victim's car, ends up in the hospital. We'll talk about that in just a minute, and then, you know, wait for it. What ends up happening is Five juveniles ages 13 to 15 turns out are are in the car. They find a gun. It's a stolen car. You've got five kids, no one over fifteen that is involved in the armed robbery, the car theft, and the fleeing police. And now you've got one person that is dead. Horrible story. Now it's coming out a little bit of details about the the victims. Apparently, the man who died, um, who was the passenger in the car that was hit by these fifteen, I presume it was a fifteen-year-old driving, but I don't know for sure. It could have been a thirteen-year-old driving. His name was Marquis Hackett. Um, He died in the crash. He was apparently out on his first date with uh, with a woman when they were struck. They had just left a restaurant. They were going into the intersection. The woman who was apparently driving, her name is Tiffany Cleves Moore. She says she she remembers nothing of this other than she woke up in the hospital with a broken back and a bruised lung. The victim, uh, Mr. Hackett, who died as a result of this, his mother was quoted on uh, Channel 12 as saying, devoted family man, loved horses, leaves behind two daughters and a son. So he, he's out on a date. <clears throat> That's what this is. He's out on a date. It's seven thirty at night on a Sunday night. He's had a nice meal, and you're just, you know, you're just doing those, those things. You're talking to the person. On it's the first date and stuff. And, and boom! All of a sudden, one person ends up in the hospital with a broken back. Second person ends up in a morgue, leaving three three children behind. All because you have these reckless, irresponsible juveniles who do not care about anything but themselves. And now the reality is one or more of them is going to go to prison for a long period of time. And that's appropriate. That's fine. But it doesn't bring back this man. And until collectively we say enough is enough and we start to take juvenile crime seriously and we try to we start to take juvenile car theft seriously these type of things are just going to happen and some people would argue this we talked about yesterday well the police shouldn't chase well nuts to that the police have to chase when you get a report that there's a stolen car and there's a gun involved and they're running of course you have to chase the answer is people have to learn to not run from the cops which brings me to where I want to start the program today. Um, Journal Sentinel has a piece in the paper. <clears throat> what we know after a violent weekend in Milwaukee, so much for the Violence Prevention Task Force, what we know after a violent weekend in Milwaukee left 18 shot and two teenagers dead. Let, let's just think about that for a second. Okay, we're in the middle of January, and I know it's a mild January, but 18 people shot and two teenagers dead in the course of one weekend. My goodness, I think you could probably think of some of the most war-torn areas in the world, and I'm not sure you get 18 shot and two teenagers dead. Here's the part about the teenagers. The first shooting involving a teenager took place Saturday night when two teenage boys were shot on the 2600 block of North 52nd Street around 6 p.m. 6 p.m., 13-year-old boy was shot in both arms and was in serious condition. 14-year-old boy was not breathing when first responders arrived, but he was resuscitated. They're both at Frederick. Um <clears throat> Let's see. Police say the 14-year-old um, later died of his injury. No suspects are in custody. The second incident took place early Monday when a 15-year-old was shot in the 3600 block of North 9th Street. 15-year-old um, died uh, from his wounds. Police do not have any suspects in custody. So you've got two kids, 114, 115, who are, are dead because of, of shootings that are going on. And we don't know for sure because no suspects are in custody. But my guess is that when they find the suspects, it's in all likelihood, it's going to be other juveniles that, that happen because that's what you see happen. You see kids shooting kids. Now, I understand that the kids can shoot other people as well, but most of the times this ends up being kids shooting kids. There's a piece in the Wall Street Journal today that caught my attention. Juvenile crime is surging. And they they say it's just kids killing kids. In the United States, get this, homicides committed by juveniles acting alone rose 30% in 2020 from a year earlier, while those committed by multiple juveniles increased 66%. The number of killings committed by children under 14 was the highest in two decades. The number of juveniles killing other juveniles was the highest it has been in more than two decades, the 2020 federal data shows. And then the story in the Wall Street Journal goes down and it breaks up, it breaks in, it looks at like specific like instances, and it talks to certain DAs, including this one district attorney who works out of the Bronx, and, and she's talking about the problem they have with getting juveniles to be held accountable. Her office cited the case of a 17-year-old who was arrested on three separate occasions on gun possession charges and sent to family court each time where he was then turned loose onto the street, and finally he was arrested for murder. And, and this all happened within 12 months. So four, <clears throat> three arrests for possession of a firearm illegally. All those occasions, the kid was just turned back and put on the street, ultimately. And then, finally, he, he kills somebody. And now he's presumably going to go away for life, I, I would guess, or, or close to that. But it raises this question, and this is where I want to start the program today, about children and firearms. And I'm talking about the whether it's the whether they're you know fourteen year old gangbangers or just people who've gotten access to their parents' guns or think they're cool or whatever. It's kids with guns. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. I firmly believe that we have reached the point in Wisconsin. And I I guess I think I'm, I'm probably talking to my friends in the state legislature and maybe the governor if he wants to listen. But isn't it time to now start a zero tolerance policy when it comes to kids and guns? That is, you find a 14 year old out on the street in possession of a firearm. You find a 16 year old in possession of a firearm and what you do, you don't. Look, again, I don't care whether we send them through the juvenile system and have some sort of preventive detention or you waive them into adult court. That, That doesn't make much difference to me. But don't we need a zero tolerance system where we say if you are a kid and you get caught with a gun, just simple possession of a gun, we are going to give you some form of detention whether it's treating you as an adult and sending you to prison for two years or whether it's sending you to juvenile detention for two years, we are going to get you off the street. We're going to have a true Zero tolerance policy when it comes with kids with guns. Not here, we're going to arrest you, we're going to take the firearm away, we're going to send you to juvenile detention, you're going to stay there for 48 hours, and then we're going to turn you loose back on the street to go get another gun and go out and ultimately shoot somebody. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. Isn't it time for zero tolerance when it comes to kids and firearms? And if not, well... (laughs) when will it ever be 8556161620 we discuss in a moment 8556161620 which is the old National Bank Talk and Text Line are right, over the weekend, 18 shootings, two more juveniles who were killed. But this is part of a trend that's happening all over the country. It's not just Milwaukee. It The number of juveniles shooting juveniles and juveniles being shot is absolutely skyrocketing. And you have all these other instances of juveniles that are out there committing crimes with guns. I'm saying it's time for a zero tolerance policy, and maybe you need the legislature, you probably do, need the legislature to change the laws, but how about mandi- mandatory detention, if not waiver into adult court, for that 15-year-old who's walking around with a gun? You gotta get guns out of the hands of kids, and that's a starting point. First texter says, Amen, Jeff. Let's talk to Greg in Wawatosa. Greg, you're on WTMJ.
2: Yeah, hi, Jeff.
3: How you doing?
1: Hi, Greg. Good. What do you think?
3: Yeah, listen. I um I had a conversation with a friend who's African American, and I, I'm a bit older than him. I think he was probably in his 20s. And anyway, um, I, I the, the topic came up about kids with guns, and more specifically, you know, young kids. And I asked him. I said, you know, when I was a kid, um, if kids had something to settle, you know, they might, you know, get in a fist fight or something like that. At the mm-hmm. worst, maybe a knife or something. I've heard that but never guns really. And this seems to be a reoccurring theme in the last, you know, several years. And I said, do you know why that is? Why do the kids turn to guns? And he said, because they don't want to get hurt. And I thought that was kind of an odd answer because I'm like, well, you know, you're going to get a lot more hurt with a gun than with fists. But I guess his point was, is if someone hits you in the face, you know, you're going to be reeling and, and falling down and you might not, you know, take any recourse then. But uh, that was his answer, and I, I, just thought that was kind of uh, interesting.
1: Well, and Greg, thanks to call. I mean, I, there. I mean, I, let me let me say, I, I agree and I disagree. Thanks. For, I mean, okay. On, on the one hand, that is one of the trends that we've we've noticed over the years that that everybody carries guns nowadays. You're you're right. It used to be that two guys get into a beef over uh, a woman or something like that, and you go out to the parking lot, and you, you punch it out, and and maybe somebody ends up in the emergency room. Okay, th- that's it. Nowadays, everybody is carrying guns, and so what happens is you go out in the parking lot, and, and nobody wants to be disrespected, and nobody can back down, and so somebody ends up in, in the morgue. So, I mean, I I understand that that's one of the things that, that's that's going on, but... But look at where a lot of these shootings are, are happening. It's it's We're, we're carrying, and I mean, I'm not just talking about, when I talk about mandatory detention and zero tolerance policies, I'm not just talking about shooting the gun. I mean, I'm talking about having the gun. Look at the story again from Sunday. You've got five kids ages 13 to 15 who are involved in an armed robbery okay, they' they're brandishing a, a gun. So this wasn't this wasn't for self-defense. This wasn't gee,'m I'm, I'm afraid that somebody's gonna come out of an alley and try to beat me up or something. No, the, these the reason they were possessing guns is because they were out on the prowl looking to, rob other people at at gunpoint. And I'm just saying, when you have people doing that, you have to say that there's got to be some accountability for it. And I think, unfortunately, our juvenile justice system, I put that in quotation marks, still and I've used this analogy before, they still act like it's Opie, you know, TPing a house in in Mayberry. That's not what's going on. You know, when I hear stories about 13-year-olds that are out on the street in stolen cars, carrying guns, that tells me that there's got to be consequences. Now, I understand there needs to be some degree of rehabilitation and all, but if all you do, if you take a 13- or 14-year-old who you've caught with a gun and you send them back, to mom and dad, they're going to be out a week later and they're going to have another gun trying to steal another car and if you do the same thing over and over again, pretty soon what's going to happen is they're going to be fleeing from the cops, they're going to run through a red light, they're going to hit and kill themselves or even worse, hit and kill somebody else so don't we need to intervene early and stop it Uh, let's see, Dan in Campbellsport Dan, you're on WTMJ
4: Hey Jeff Uh, I
5: wanted to jump in on this one quite a while ago um, I believe that these kids are pulling this stunt off because um, it's almost like little Johnny did it, and now little Bobby has to do it to match mm-hmm. what he just did. And then, that being said, it's almost like a badge of honor or an early version of a gang style. Mm-hmm. And they actually want to do this stuff. They don't. So it's like, look at me. I just did
4: that. And now yep. little Johnny has to now pick it up and see if he can do it. I think it's, well, it's a rolling
1: ball. No. Right. No, Dan, thanks for the call. Uh, I, and I think you're, you, you are, you're, you're onto something. Let's, Let me just change the scenario a little bit. Remember several months ago when you had that that Kia Boys video that came out, and they were talking about why everybody's stealing the Kias and the Hyundais and things like that, and and a couple of the people they were talking to, these these kids were up front. They said, nothing happens. Okay, most of the times when we steal the cars, we're not going to get caught. We we know that. And on those rare occasions when we get caught, hey, we're in detention for a day, and then we're back out on the streets. There's no accountability, and that's That's to your point. So it does become this kind of badge of honor. And if you know that nothing bad is going to happen to you, if you know that there are no real consequences and and my goodness, see this to me, this isn't a conservative or a liberal thing. I don't care where you are on gun owners rights. We should all agree. That 13 and 14 and 15 year olds should not be roaming the streets armed to the teeth looking for people to rob at gunpoint, cars to steal at gunpoint, or looking for other people to shoot at gunpoint. I mean, can we all agree that kids should not have guns, right? So how do we stop the kids from getting guns? Well, okay, there's a couple different things, but the easiest thing to do is to say, okay, if you get caught with a firearm, there is going to be a degree of accountability that's out there. And and by the way, and I, a number of people, and I can tell we have regular listeners who are texting saying, well, Jeff, that's why it's so insane that this new juvenile justice facility that they're building on the northwest side is only going to have 32 beds to which the congregation says, amen. I mean, we we need to be we need to be filling these juvenile detention facilities. And I'm not saying, look, I'm not saying every 15-year-old you catch out on the street with a gun needs to go away for 15 years, but they need to go away. They need to be taught that there are consequences for roaming the streets in these circumstances. Denise, Denise Troy. Denise, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. That's
6: me, Jeff.
1: Hi, Denise. I what do you think? I am
6: just as angry as you. I am just as angry about this situation. Uh, It's absolutely ridiculous. And my thoughts are zero tolerance, zero. No one strike, two, three strikes. One time you're done. And I think these parents need to be held 100% accountable as if they did the crime themselves. Because a 13-year-old is not an adult. These parents are not doing anything with these kids. So they're out on the streets. I think if we make the parents accountable, yeah, they could possibly lose their job. They have to pay fines. They have to do this. Maybe have to do time in jail, and or if they're on state aid, take away their state aid. Consequences. Consequences for these parents. I'm just so livid.
1: Yeah, Denise, say thanks for the call. You know, you know, interestingly enough, but of course, we're not willing to do that. Remember. I'm uh, getting on my high horse now. Okay, remember last summer? There's that shooting in the Water Street area, right? Remember that? And we have the press conference, and we've got the mayor, and we've got representatives from the police department, and they say, here's what we're going to do. We are going to crack down. We've got a curfew law in Milwaukee, and we are going to enforce that curfew law. And the curfew law says we could go after the kids, but we can also go after the parents. The fines are doubled, and so we're going to go after this. Well, okay, what, what happened? I mean, the last time we made an open records request, or somebody did, at months into this, there were like 10 tickets it was just purely bs lip service that's all it was it was never aggressively enforced and and you might say to me well jeff okay you know given everything that's going on given that you got 15 year olds stealing cars and and running through red lights and killing people you know curfew violations don't make any sense but to her point it's exactly right you know the the parents we say we're going to hold parents accountable we're going to give them curfew tickets okay the the one of the kids that was shot and killed it was like one thirty in the morning it 's a fifteen year old kid what 's a fifteen year old kid doing out at one thirty in the morning and i 'm open to ways to try to keep the parents more accountable i 'm open to all sorts of stuff i i, I am I, I think everything has to be on the table, but we start with the idea I think of zero tolerance. you get caught with a firearm and boom. You go to detention or you go to adult court, you do not pass go. You don't get sent back to your family with a slap on the wrist to go out and do the same darn thing two days later. And we're not doing these kids a favor by just sending them back out on the street because all we're doing is encouraging them to go do it again and again. And sooner or later, they're going to get killed. They're going to get killed. They're going to kill somebody else. And they are going to end up in an adult prison for the next 30 years. Why don't we intervene earlier to try to make a difference? Just asking. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Two final thoughts on our conversation about zero tolerance for kids with guns. First of all, when somebody texted in and said, "Well, Jeff, you, you can't do that because you know what about hunting or target shooting?" And, and and that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, obviously there are exceptions for legitimate supervised uses, but I'm I'm talking about the unaccompanied kid that's out on the street in possession of a firearm. That's what I that's what I'm talking about, and I think that's appropriate. Plus, a number of people are texting in about the, the idea of boot camps, and I, I have, I I was ahead of my time on this. When I ran for state attorney general in 1994, this was one of the issues I was talking about then. I said, Look, our, our juvenile justice system is not working. It's a catch and release system, and we need to start looking at options, including boot camps. And then I remember the reporter said, Well, what, what, would you, what do you mean? You know, boot camps. I Said, Yeah, you, you catch some 14 year old you know, stealing cars or has got a gun. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd send him off to boot camp. 14 years old? Absolutely. Absolutely, and there was all this blowback. Oh, you can't do that. Poor little Johnny and Joni. You're going to send Opie to this boot camp where people yell at him? And my attitude was, was yeah, I was just 30 years ahead of my time because we should have been doing that. We should have been trying to instill consequences. And It's not always going to work, but there needs to be some degree of accountability, and I have always felt like these juvenile boot camps, it's a comparatively inexpensive you know, proposition. And if it means scaring people straight and if it means, okay, you're going to get up at, you know, 630 in the morning and you're going to be, you know, have classes and you're going to do exercises and you're going to have drill instructors and stuff. Yeah. And if a little bit of that is a scared straight thing, my attitude is, yeah, that that's, that's good because we haven't done it. And look what has happened over the last couple decades. All right. Let us switch gears. And I, I want to have a a serious conversation about this. Over the last three days, there have been two massacres in California, and there's no other way to describe this. Now, these these shootings are, are a little bit different, at least as far as the, the perpetrators. We all know what happened. Um, there was the mass shooting Saturday night in, in Monterey Park, California. Okay, and this was... Lunar New Year was over the weekend, and so what happened is you have a 72 year old Asian American man who shows up at a at a dance studio, it's you know dance studio, dance hall, whatever during a ballroom during one of these celebrations, opens fire, kills 11 people, injures nine others, goes to another popular dance studio, tries to do the same thing and if you've seen the interviews with the the young man who was acting as the doorman you want to talk about a hero you know he he gets into a fight with the guy doesn't let him in so he he i think saves a lot of people's lives and then what happens is the shooter ends up killing himself as police close in so this is it's atypical to the extent that you have a a 72 year old guy these that's normally it's male but normally it's a young male that does this. So then you get the story from yesterday where you have a 67-year-old suspect in Half Moon Bay, California, again, Northern California, who has been arrested in connection with, you know, shootings. And this is kind of like San Mateo, California. Apparently they, they don't know what the motives were, but he ends up, you know, shooting, what, another a 7 year people in connection you know with a second mass shooting and this guy again 67 years old so he doesn't necessarily fit the profile but that doesn't change the fact that you know people are dead california has some of the most restrictive quote unquote gun control laws in the country and it didn't stop either shooter from being able to at least own possess and then use the firearms that they used in these two massacres over the course of the last couple days. This has really gotten a number of commentators thinking, because, and and I'm, I'm going to make the argument, and then I want to have the conversation with you. The truth of the matter is that you can have all the tough gun control worlds, you know, laws in the world, But it's not going, none of them are going to be able to, you know, prevent either one of these two shooters from, you know, getting firearms and then acting out. If it's just not because I. my guess is I think it's going to come back that uh, both of them legally obtained the firearms or even with the, the tough gun control laws, it wasn't enough to stop them from having them. So I'm looking at a number of opinion pieces, starting with one in the Washington Post and one a couple other places. And essentially, the bottom line of what some people are saying is that the only way in this country to prevent mass shootings is to simply outlaw the ownership of firearms. Now, again, maybe you can make some exceptions for hunting with certain regulations, but the argument is the Second Amendment is outdated. The Second Amendment was meant to protect, you know, citizen militias. It wasn't intended, and I understand the current Supreme Court disagrees with that, but the argument is, you know, as, you know no gun control law that exists is going to stop People from being able to get a gun and the being able to conduct some of these senseless mass shootings. So the argument is the only way to do this is to simply say it is time to ban firearms and you can make exceptions for hunting guns and certain storage rules. But the argument is, have we had enough is enough? And is it time to simply say, all right, private ownership of firearms will no longer be allowed? And that is the trade off, I guess for, and if you say, no, we we don't want to do that, is the trade-off then that we have to understand that we're going to continue to have these mass shootings because that's really what this a lot of people are all about. When they talk about gun control things, all the gun control laws I see generally like they, they, they dance around the edges of the issue. If you want to prevent mass shootings, I guess the only thing to do would be to pass a law saying citizens must turn in their firearms. We will not allow private ownership of firearms. And if you don't turn in your gun that you we are going to treat you as a criminal. All right. Have we reached the point in 2023 where that's something that should seriously be considered? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. What do you think? Is it time to simply say the Second Amendment doesn't work anymore? We discuss in just a moment. Okay, just, to, just to give you some perspective here, the estimates are in the United States. There are 393 million firearms in the United States. The number of people in the United States, 334 million. So, and of course, that, that, you know, while there's some people that don't own a gun, there's some people that own three or four guns. That's how you account for that. But for everybody that wants to talk about, like the Washington Post editorial that suggests that, you know, maybe it's time to really start looking at banning firearms. You're talking about 400 million firearms. Um the vast majority of which are legally possessed, and the vast majority of which, and I speak as a gun owner myself, I, it would never occur to me to take my firearm and to show up at a dance hall and start you know, shooting people. And my guess is for the vast majority, 99.9% of people, that, that's the reaction. The gun does not pose a threat. Maybe you use the gun for self-defense in your house, maybe you use it for target shooting, maybe you use a rifle for deer hunting or whatever. It would never occur you to you to put on a occur to you to put on a ski mask and go to a 7-Eleven and start shooting people or to show up at a a school and start shooting people. So I guess the question becomes, is the fact that you get that .00001% of gun owners who might do that, is that enough of a justification to say we are going to try to confiscate all the weapons that are out there? And, And I guess as a practical matter, my question is, how do you even do this? All right, one of our texters, Jeff, unfortunately that ship has sailed too many illegal guns out there already, so if all the law-abiding citizens turn in their guns, only criminals will have them, and that would be very sad. Here's a text from one of our listeners in Illinois who says, Jeff, this all sounds pretty logical to me. After all, why don't they have these problems in Europe and other places? Because they have sensible gun laws, and they don't allow, to my knowledge, private ownership of firearms. Um, It depends on the country, but it it is true that in many countries, the penalty for possession of firearms other than authorized circumstances is a lot greater. All right, let's start with Lamar in Orlando. Lamar, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
0: Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Sure. However, making gun ownership a right, I think you could make a good argument that the Second and Third Amendments are kind of old. Um, but, yeah, I would, I would go to, like other countries. I wouldn't have it being a right because it's that right that Americans are can use to push back against what even you would agree some laws. And, and the idea that we say one state has strict laws and the other one doesn't, but yet they still deal with the same problems is because, I mean, the borders are artificial. It's not like there's checkpoints at the borders preventing me from going from, let's mm-hmm. say, State A, where they have strict gun laws, going to State B, getting a gun, where the laws are a little lax, they coming back in State A and wreaking havoc. But a ban, no, it's not even practical. But changing it from a right to a privilege would absolutely be ideal. Give me,
1: give me one thing. If you were king, and let's forget about the Second Amendment for a minute, in the real world, if you were king, what is one thing that you would do that you think would reduce... Firearm violence with regard to the number of guns that are out there.
0: I would, I would add more resources to getting the firearms off the streets. Number one, number okay. two, I would add add more uh, more requirements to gun ownership, training um, requirements. There would be you know deeper background checks, um, and like a license, it would you'd have to renew it. You know, it, it would have to renew. There'd be a lot of. St- I mean, I, I could go on and on on about this. Okay, There'd be wow. a lot more steps. Right now, it's
1: just simply too easy. Okay, no, th- thanks for calling, Lamar. Well, I mean, I, I I know, like for example, for concealed carry permits, and I know some of you disagree with me on this. I've always I've always believed that there should be an, a proficiency element to that, and I know I've, I've made that argument before. Just like when you get a driver's license we we don't just simply say oh you're you're 16 you have to have some behind the wheel training we don't say hey you're you're 16 and here i want to watch you a, a video and here we're going to throw you the keys now go out on the freeway i i do i i do think there should be proficiency training i i guess the the problem that i have with this, and I, I'm seriously open to this, because I'm as frustrated as everybody when you have these stories, but I just don't know what you do in, in the real world. You're not going to confiscate 400 million firearms. People aren't going to turn them in. That's just the reality of this, and somebody was saying, well, you know, they did this in Australia. Well, Australia's not the United States. Australia isn't anywhere near the size of the United States, and when you have a whole bunch of people who just, now you're going to make them criminals because they don't want to give up their guns, well, okay, we, we, we can't build we can't build prisons to take care of people who are committing gun crimes or stealing cars. So now we're going to take otherwise law-abiding citizens and incarcerate them. That's just as a practical matter, it, it's not. It's not reality of. It's not the reality of this. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Um, let's see. Let's talk to Danny in Janesville. Danny, good afternoon.
5: Hey Jeff, how are
1: you doing? Good. What do you think?
5: Uh. My gosh, when you mention it, I'm just like, Oy vey, I'd love to know who the idiot is that's coming up with that idea. Um, I mean, I'm all for gun control. You know, I have no problems with that. I think assault weapons should be banned and so on. But, you know, there's that old saying of, if you outlaw guns, only outlaws will have guns.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: If you have a need for something, whether it be alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever, even if it's illegal... You're going to do whatever it takes to get your fix. So, okay, they make guns illegal, and you want to go out and shoot somebody. You're still going to find your way to get a gun, no matter what you have to do, by hook or by crook. You're going to do it. And I understand that, you know, we want to try to be proactive instead of reactive. But, come on, the cat was out of the bag 200 years ago when we put the Second Amendment into the Constitution. And now it's like, okay, well... You made your bed; you got to sleep in it. Now it's like, okay, is there going to be a perfect solution? No, there isn't. But taking the guns away from law-abiding citizens and making criminals of them all—I mean, my God—we already outlawed, you know, cocaine and other, you know, uh, narcotics like that. Look at how bad the drug, the drug war is gone. Right. You know, that's not—that's not in any essence of being closed down. And they think they can do the same thing with guns. Come on, this is ridiculous.
1: Yeah, it's it's. Uh, thanks for call, I thanks the call, Danny. I appreciate it. Um, I, I mean, here's a text, Jeff. The only way to reduce gun violence is to lock up criminals early and often. Well, I think you know that's that's kind of. I think that's sort of the starting point. Um, you know, for that. Um, and, and look, and I'm as frustrated with this as anybody, and I think. You know, I'm all in favor of kind of like to see something, say something. You know, I think if you look at these two California cases, when they look at the backgrounds of the people, you know, again, it comes up, and I don't know that some people are surprised that this is the the shooter, all because now they go back and they say, okay, this was some disaffected loner and things like that. Uh, Unfortunately, at this point in time, I I just – I think that the – and I'm frustrated by this, but I think the reality is you cannot confiscate 400 million guns. That's just not going to happen. That is not practical. We are not Switzerland. We are not Australia. Um, maybe you could say we made a bad choice 200 years ago, but that is the choice that ended up you know, being made. So I, I think – Now what we have to do is I think we have to start concentrating more on prevention, and maybe that means, you know, being more proactive, and maybe that means more metal detectors, and maybe that means more vigilance, but at least in the short term, and I'm as frustrated with this as anybody, I think one of the lessons is, you know, we're, we continue to be vulnerable to these, these mass shootings at this point in time, which, is a frustrating and it's not a very sympathetic reaction. You know, can we, oh, look, I, I've always been a believer that I don't think you need the. I don't, I don't think you need the the, the, g- the giant magazines that have 30 rounds in it, things like that. I, I think you can, you know, come up with some sensible stuff. But the truth of the matter is, let's be honest, as long as there's private ownership of firearms allowed, and I'm not calling for the end of that, we are always going to be vulnerable to the crazy and the criminal who gets guns and taking guns away from law abiding citizens, to me, isn't going to solve that problem. A lot of great stuff coming up at the one o'clock hour of the program. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. <laughs>
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
1: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. So very glad to have you with us. Yeah, we'll, of course, keep you updated on everything going on in the roadway. I'm, I'm looking at some pictures of this. It's, it's been happening for about the last hour or so. This, this semi that has turned over... Um, is now shut down eastbound Interstate 794 at Van Buren. That's, that's, if you can imagine it, that's where eastbound traffic on 794 turns south approaching the Hone Bridge. So that, that's where that is. And there's a semi that is turned over as Eric was talking about. The only, the, the good news about this, I guess, and it's going to take forever to, to deal with because they've got to unload the semi and then um, get the semi righted and then get it off the roadway, and that's going to be a long process because it looks like the semi is full. The, the, only, the only good thing here is it seems we went through a period of time where we had all these trucks that would, would turn over, and their contents – were always things like pig guts. I mean, I can remember really, we got a truck that was full of pig guts that that's turned over, or be, steel bearings, or, or whatever. In this particular situation. It's boxes of something. I don't know what it is, but it's a process to unload the truck so they can flip it up, but it's not at least stuff that you're going to also have some massive hazmat cleanup or something, you know, once they get the truck unloaded. But the bottom line is this one's not going anywhere anytime soon, so if you want to go south – um and, like, for example, go over the home Bridge, you're, you're not going to be able to do that on Interstate 794. They're getting everybody off at Van Buren, so don't even try it. Okay, let's see. Do you want the do you want – we're going to do one more crime-related topic, and then we're going to switch to other stuff. Do you want – it's semi-crime-related. Do you want the good news or the bad news? Let me, let me give you the good news first. How about that? Because I'm basically this glass is half full sort of guy. The number of motor vehicles – stolen in the city of Milwaukee year to date is down from the previous year and down from two years ago. So it's down. And so that is a good thing. There are, as of a couple days ago, as of January 23rd, there are fewer cars year to date stolen this year than last year, and there were fewer stolen last year than two years ago. 2021 was just an an all-time high for this. Okay, that's the good news. The bad news is that last year, as of January 23rd, there were 616 cars that had been stolen. That translates into about 26 a day, all right? This year, there have been 469 cars stolen, so that's fewer, but it still translates into 20 cars a day. There are, on average, now some days it might be 30, some days it might be 10, but but on average, just in the city of Milwaukee, there are 20 cars being stolen every day. 20 cars. And if your car is one of those, it's a really, really big deal. So there's a lot of reasons why this goes on, largely the fact that we have a lot of criminals that are out there who are stealing cars, But one of the – if you look at the types of cars that are stolen, and we've talked about this before, Kias and Hyundais make up the vast majority of those. Why is that? Well, the reality is, is that because particularly for some of the late model Kias and Hyundais, what happens is they don't don't have what they're called engine immobilizers. And so as a result – um, once once they get stolen, they can continue to be operated without having the key fob. Lots of other cars don't have you know, have this feature that if you try to steal them and you don't have the key fob, it's you're not going to be able to do it. There's a couple other things that we don't need to go into in, in detail, although the bad guys know them, about how Hyundai's and Kia's are a little bit easier to be stolen. But again, some of the models don't have the engine immobilizers. My understanding is in some of the newer cars, they're going to put that in. But clearly, they are more vulnerable to car theft. Well, um, actually, CBS 58 had this story the other day. There's been a lot of discussion over the last year or two, the city of Milwaukee thinking about either joining a lawsuit that has already been filed in federal court or starting its own lawsuit against Kia and Hyundai, alleging that they should be accountable. And so the story I saw the other night says, okay, Milwaukee officials are saying Kia's and Hyundai's are easy targets. Car thieves are taking advantage of the lack of, again, devices that are there, the lack of engine immobilizers. And so the thinking is... Well, one of the aldermen, for example, says we need to take action. We need to take the fight to the people that in some ways are responsible for putting us in this situation, and we have to correct this as quickly as possible. So members of the Common Council are saying, hey, you know, this is now the time. St. Louis is talking about doing the same thing, but so far hasn't either. And like I said, there is a private lawsuit, which has been filed by private attorneys, that is in federal court um, trying to start a class action lawsuit. And as we know, generally speaking with class action lawsuits, the only people that benefit is the um, are the attorneys. But let's tee this up. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, this has been an argument that's been kicking around for a while, but it is now back. Milwaukee Common Council apparently seriously considering either joining or filing its own lawsuit saying we have this rash of auto thefts and we want to hold Kia and Hyundai responsible. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. And I guess my question to anybody who thinks that's a good idea is where, where does this stop? If I leave my door unlocked and somebody... I don't know, breaks in, am I responsible for that? If I leave my garage door up when I walk down the street and somebody enters my garage and steals stuff, am I responsible? If I leave my window open and somebody comes around, my back window open, and somebody comes around and, I don't know, kicks out the screen and gets in, am I the one that's responsible? Is it the car manufacturer or is it the crook? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Jeff, when will this junk end? The person doing the crime is responsible solely for the crime. The blame game has run its course, and it's failed miserably. Um, Jeff, the Kia problem with easy theft solution? Change the subject to a loaded gun that injures or kills somebody. Don't we hold someone responsible? Likewise, kia Hyundai, someone should be held accountable, too. Okay, I guess my argument would be, all right, who do you hold accountable? And to me, if if a car is stolen, it's the fault of the person who is stealing the car. I mean, it, it's like saying, all right, we, we tell people, okay, don't leave your car running and unattended. Okay, and and I, I agree with that. That's good, solid advice. But does that mean if somebody comes up and steals your car that it's your fault that the car was stolen? I mean, why don't we put the blame where the blame belongs, which is one of our texters say, would be the criminals jeff i think it's ridiculous to try to have a lawsuit against kia and hyundai i'm a kia driver and i know every day there's a chance my car could be stolen but i think it's on the young dumb irresponsible children that need to be taught better not manufacturers al in bayview al you're on wtmj good afternoon
2: uh good afternoon jeff uh I bought a, or I leased a new Kia about a year ago at this time. 1,200 miles later, my car was stolen. Now, I went back to the dealership because the, uh, the salesman at the time, I questioned the salesman. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, I understand these Kias and Hyundais are uh, very easy to steal. He said, no, oh, no, 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 that was all fixed by Kia. They reconfigured the ignition, and now it's not a problem. Well, uh, the, the cops <laughs> got their car back the same night, and I went back to the dealership and told them what the de- uh, salesman told me. Well, no, no, our salesman wouldn't tell you nothing like that. <laughs> the salesman doesn't work there anymore. Yeah. And uh, now every place I go, i got to put the club on. And everybody says, well, the club's not going to solve your problem. Well, that's all i got. Kia yeah. has not done anything for me. Has there any? They haven't come up with anything. You, I'd be willing to buy something that could be put on my car now to keep uh, from being yeah. stolen. So uh, that's my story, Jeff.
1: Al, thanks for the call. I, I appreciate it. And look, I, I mean, actually, what you what you are saying is is ultimately is a solution to the problem. Uh, And I, again, my understanding is some of, I don't know what your car you bought, my understanding is that the the newer Kias, the newest Kias, they're starting to come out with have engine immobilizers on it, but I don't know that for sure. I I mean, I I just purchased a a car, it's getting delivered at the end of next month or something like that, didn't go Kia. But, but see, there is a market response to this. And the market response is you say, I'm not buying Kias. You know, I, I don't, I, I live in these areas. I know these things are easy to be stolen. And I'm not going to buy this. I'm not going to lease it unless you, I have these questions, you know, what what about the engine immobilizer? What about some other stuff? And again, I'm not going into the details about how these are easier to steal than other types of cars. Uh, if, if you want to find that out, you, trust me, you can do that with a little bit of research on the internet yourself. But I mean, I think there is that market thing where I think people need to ask some of these questions and need to do their own research and, and verify this. But, but that So that's a way of trying to get Kia to change. But that doesn't change the underlying issue, which is at least, in in my opinion, the the reason that by, by trying to sue the manufacturer, we are ducking responsibility for the real problem, which is that you have criminals out there, in many cases... And I think the statistics will bear them out. If you look at the people that have been caught stealing cars, lots of them have been caught stealing multiple cars. If I was Kia, I would say my defense would be, look, it's, it's not our fault. Look at the, the criminal justice system. Look at the juvenile justice system that, that's out there that, that's turning people loose. Here you have somebody that stole a car. Three days later, he was out, stole another car. Three days later, he was out, stole another car. If I'm the Kia manufacturer, I'm saying, you're telling me that this is my problem? I mean, this is this is my problem because, you know, even if the cops catch people, you turn them loose. Jeff, no one blames the criminals anymore. Why the heck are we blaming uh, Kias? Um, Jeff, I'm a glass installer. I see break-ins every day. What happens is people smash the glass, they reach through, they unlock the door. Is that the lock manufacturer's fault as well? Jeff, it's not just Kia or Hyundai's fault. GM cars, for the longest time, were the easiest to steal. Also, nobody blamed GM for the problem. People came up with solutions and installed items like the Chicago collar on the steering wheel to prevent theft of the GM vehicle. See, here's the point that I've always made, too. As long as you have people that are inclined to be out there stealing cars... Ah, they're going to steal cars. That's not particularly profound. I, I don't I don't claim that it would be, but they're going to steal the, the cars that, that are there. So if you make it tougher to steal Kia's, well, okay, then maybe people are going to be looking to steal Fords or whatever. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, you've got a design that that is, is somewhat vulnerable, but it is... Is to say the manufacturer, and I'm going to go back to the analogies I used earlier. To say Kia is responsible if somebody steals your car is seriously, it's like saying I'm responsible if somebody comes in and cleans out my house if I've left the front door open. Well, Jeff, you shouldn't have left the front door open. Or even if I've got the door locked but I don't have the deadbolt on. Well, Jeff, you should have had the deadbolt lock on. Or it was the summer. You left your home with the windows open and so it was easy for somebody to kick out the screen. You are responsible for that. No, the bottom line is at the end of the the day. It's the criminal that is responsible for that. Jeff, so what they're saying is I should be able to hold my phone manufacturer, the provider, and the software company that I have for security liable since my phone was hacked. I'm tired of hearing this with no focus on, you know, fixing the real problem. Um Jeff, I, it's not Kia's problem or fault. I do blame the buyers of these cars, but more so I blame the thief. How does society, this is a great line from one of our texters, how does society create so many people willing to steal? That's the elephant in the room. Yeah, that is the elephant in the room. So for all these aldermen that are talking about, well, we got to file this lawsuit or join a lawsuit, m- maybe the real question is, why don't you confront the underlying problem? The underlying problem being that you have this criminal class and a criminal element who is out there looking to steal stuff. I mean, to me, it's just, again, getting beyond the, the Kia and the Hyundai thing, it's just unbelievable to me that we have gotten to a point in in a metropolitan area where we tell people you can't leave your let your car warm up in your driveway because if you do... Even if it's for only a couple minutes there's going to be somebody that's going to come along and steal it. Now, I think it's good advice to say, okay, don't let your car, you know, unattended and running in the driveway. But when did we get to this point? And what does it say about us that we're now in a situation where we have to say, no, that's your thing. But unless, if you leave it running, you should just expect it to be stolen. I mean, really, every day, we seriously get closer to, the, like like living in communities that are like Escape from New York, where all you have is roving Bands of, of thugs, criminals, whatever, just going around looking for targets of opportunity. Well, maybe maybe what we need to do is crack down on those roving bands of thugs and put the accountability where it really belongs. And that's not on the manufacturers. It's not on you if you don't lock your door. It's not on you if you leave your window up. It's on the bad guys. And the sooner we confront that, the better and the safer we're all going to be. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff, the problem of cars being stolen is due to children not being raised correctly in their home. My kids are in their 30s, and they never stole a car. That's, um, Jeff, thank God. I live in North Fond du Lac, where people leave their windows open in their vehicles during the summer and don't worry about being robbed or their vehicle being taken. Jeff, with so many thieves, I believe there's a complete breakdown of the family. Uh, Jeff, uh, going after the auto manufacturer is like charging the match company and the lighter company for every arson fire in the city of Milwaukee. Well, there is, there is an element to that. But look, and, and, and I, I agree completely. I think, look, it's tough. It's tough to confront this idea that you have, like, a crime epidemic. And I I, I, I want to be the glasses-half-full guy. It's good that there's fewer car thefts this time than last year. But there's still 20 cars on average being stolen a day. That is a ridic- That's a stupid high number of cars that are stolen. Is it better than 26 a day? Absolutely. No question about it. So it, it's progress. But 20 cars a day it is a lot, and especially if it's your car that ends up getting ripped off. So maybe instead of saying, okay, let's try to get some money, let's try to extort some money from a car manufacturer, maybe we should start confronting the underlying problem, which is why there's so many criminals that feel emboldened to run the streets. All right, over the last week or so, We have had some heated discussions about the the documents that Joe Biden has had in his possession for, for years. And I understand that there's some people who are supporters of President Trump who say, OK, Biden has now been hoisted upon his own petard. This is the guy who smugly went on 60 Minutes and said, it's unconscionable that somebody could have all these documents. And then it turns out that Biden has a bunch of documents that he's been sitting on for six years. Then there's the defenders of uh, Joe Biden. Who say, oh, there's there, there's no there, there there. There's nothing to see here. You know, he just um, and, and he's he's been cooperating and, and there's a difference. Now, first of all, let's just kind of have a common sense check here. Biden's handling of documents, and the Wall Street Journal has an interesting editorial yesterday that I agree with. Biden's handling of documents really hasn't been all that different from Trump's. It it hasn't. Biden apparently felt entitled to take classified documents home with him while he was a senator. He felt entitled to take classified documents with him when he left office as the vice president. And his attitude was, well, the Wall Street Journal says, unserious enough that he kept them for years. All right. The main difference between Trump and Biden, and I, I, I think is that um, Biden, Trump resisted turning the records back over. Biden has not resisted turning the records back over, but every time he comes out and says, I I found all the documents there are, then you find more documents. And some of Biden's arguments you want to talk about on Sirius, where he says, well, this was, I mean, it wasn't they were on the street, they were secured. He's got them in a cardboard box in his garage, for goodness sakes. So, I mean, the the truth is, to me, the underlying issue and the significance of this issue isn't Gee, did somebody cooperate before somebody else? The the truth is, both Trump and Biden had classified documents that they weren't supposed to have. I don't think Biden was going to sell them to the Russians or sell them to Ukrainians. I don't think there's any evidence that suggests Trump was going to do anything wrong with it. But what happened is they were just sloppy. I mean, the, the Trump documents, he didn't want to leave the White House. He didn't want to leave the living quarters at the end, right before the inauguration. They're in a rush to pack stuff up. They box all this stuff up. They throw it in these boxes, and there's confidential classified records that were up in the residence that get, you know, taken to, to Mar-a-Lago. Same thing, I'm sure, with Biden. You know, Biden had these different records. Maybe he was reading them on the Amtrak home when he was a senator, or whatever, and, and he's got them, and he never brings them back, and he has them for years. So, to me, the issue isn't, well, was somebody cooperating or was somebody not? The issue is that both these guys had classified documents that they were not supposed to have. And now we get the story today, former Vice President Mike Pence's lawyers discovered classified material at his home. The story is that the lawyers hired by the former Vice President recently discovered a small number of documents bearing classified markings that were inadvertently boxed and transported to his home. Uh, Mr. Pence was unaware of the existence of the documents. FBI agents collected documents from his home on January 19th at the request of the Justice Department. Mr. Pence agreed to the search. So, you know, now Pence is the third current or former senior executive branch official whose team has discovered classified material in their residence or office. Here is my guess. My guess is that if you look through Barack Obama's stuff you're going to find classified documents stuck there. That's just my guess. My guess is maybe if you go back and look through, you know, George uh, W. Bush's stuff, you will find classified documents. I just That is just maybe the same thing is true with, with Dick Cheney. I mean, that's just kind of my guess because one of the things that is becoming clear here is that we don't do a very good job of keeping track of classified records. Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the old national bank talk and text line. see I to the extent there is a scandal here, and i, I the, the reality is the fact that you, you can you can argue that while well, Biden was cooperating, trump wasn't as a practical matter there 's not going to be any criminal charges they 're going to get issued in connection with any of this it 's just that 's not going to happen, but to me the, the the telling point here and the takeaway is. That it is just so easy for these former elected officials, and I say former, I know Joe Biden's a president now, but these documents go back to when he was a senator or when he was vice president. It's just so easy for them to possess these documents. And that's, that's what's got to change. There's no way that Trump should have been able to get out of the White House with, you know, out having to account for documents that had been put in his possession that were classified or top secret or wherever. There's no way that Joe Biden should have been able to, you know, get out of the White House when he was Vice President or Blair House or wherever he's staying with classified documents. And the truth of the matter is nobody knows what they have. Nobody knows that Mike Pence, I mean, the, the, the Biden documents were discovered when Biden's people found them. The Pence documents were discovered when Pence's people found them. The National Archives or whoever's supposed to keep track of this apparently has no clue as to what's out there. And to me, that's what I think is really the uptake from this. And to the extent we're doing investigations, isn't that what we need to focus on, which is how is it so darn easy for these people to walk out of government service with these various classified documents? Because my guess is that for many of you who worked, you know, and maybe had a, a security classification or something with the government, you you didn't leave with documents. I mean, that was one of the deals. Before you leave the government, you made sure that anything you might have had in your possession was back where it belonged under lock and key. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Again, to me, that not that the larger point here? And shouldn't that... Let's try to put politics aside for a minute and, and stop arguing about, well, was what Trump did worse than Biden? or that, that, to me, isn't the takeaway from this. The takeaway is we've got to have a better system for keeping track of, of who gets classified documents and then what they do with them after they take them into their possession. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. You can, you can change the facts a little, but the, the, the important, the big takeaway is all these people had documents that they weren't supposed to have. And in the case of Biden, I, he's had them for years, didn't even know he had them. And, and there was nobody... Apparently in government, nobody at the National Archives, nobody, nobody checks when you leave that you're walking out with these classified documents. Nobody keeps track to see, you know, who had classified documents that that to me is just what is mind boggling to me. And what the, needs to be the, the takeaway from this is that we, we got to have a better system for keeping stuff accountable. I mean, I look. It's a different. I, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's office a long time ago, it, it there, there wasn't you didn't sign out stuff, but it was very very clear that when you leave the office, you don't you don't take the files. I mean, they don't belong to you. They belong to the office, and that was that was understood. And there was some accountability that was there. I mean, I just. I just don't understand how you have all these classified documents that are apparently just laying around and nobody knows about them. Jeff, this is from Kelly in Greenfield. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I don't have government top-secret documents. However, we have sensitive documents just like every other Average citizen, birth certificate, etc. I'm a very organized, tidy person. I'm very cautious with our sensitive papers. Um, however, the other day while cleaning out my desk, a very important item fell to the ground. So, security card. Whoa, no clue. Um, how or why it was in that desk because I keep sensitive items secured. So that's just coming from an average citizen with barely any important documents. I can't even imagine trying to make sure you have zero classified documents in your possession while working as a high-profile government official. The amount of documents has to be insane. I don't think it's intentional. Yet, And see, to me, look, I don't think any of them took them intentionally. I, I I, I just, I mean, I suspect... Again, in the Biden case, they threw these things into folders. They put them in boxes in his garage. He had no clue it was there. Trump, they were in a hurry to get him out of the executive residence. They threw all this stuff together. He had classified stuff that was mixed up with the, the private stuff, and, and it, it goes to, to Mar-a-Lago. Well, there, there should have been somebody from the jump saying, okay, you know, Vice President Biden, you, know, you have – you know, our records show that, you know, you have signed out or been given X number of top secret documents. You know, wh- where are they? And they've never been returned. There just needs to be some accounting system. And when I've talked about this before, you know, one of the examples I've always given is it's kind of like cops with evidence lockers. Right. You you go out, you make an arrest, you you seize Evidence. You do a search warrant or whatever. The evidence goes into the evidence room. Then if you need to sign it out because the prosecutor wants to see it or you want to use it as trial, you go down, you sign out the evidence. There's a chain of custody that keeps track of this stuff. I mean, that's it. Jeff, so what are the documents that are in presidential libraries? Are none of them confidential in any way? Well, okay, my understanding is it's... It's it's classified and top secret stuff. I mean, you know, there's there's and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about information that has been classified. I mean, no presidential libraries contain, you know, notes and all sorts of stuff, which it's the issue is you've walked away with classified Stuff. Jeff, if you search every home belonging to those who have top secret security clearance in our government, I'm sure you will find at least one top secret document. The days of viewing those documents in a secure environment are long gone. Um, well, okay. Jeff agreed. Level of classifications and tracking need Improvement, Jeff, the funny thing is everyone blew off Trump when he said that the other administrations did the same. Obviously, the whole classification protocol is lacking. Jeff, you took the words right out of my mouth. I'll bet there's a frantic search going on right now in the offices of Obama and Bush. Well, um, I'll bet you it goes beyond that. I'll bet you if I'm Bill Clinton, who, who knows? You know, between Bill and Hillary, who knows what's floating around, you know, their their house. Uh, Jeff, I agree with you. I think the retrieval system is the problem. And that's, I guess that's where I think we start with we just have to have a better classification system. I don't believe that there was any criminal intent on the part of, of anybody. I just don't. I think it's just the, these people that have access to these documents, and they just walk off with them, and maybe they don't see it as a big deal. Clearly, Joe Biden didn't know he had these documents, and that might even be worse than knowing he had them. Clearly, didn't even know that he'd walked off with them, or else I don't think he would have gone on 60 Minutes and been as self-righteous as he was. Uh, John on the north side. John, you're on WTMJ.
4: Hi, Jeff. I, what I don't understand is they notice that this, that this is important. It's important. So why do they walk out with those? What I what they need to do is when the last day of their job, don't walk out with anything, not even an ink pen. Don't take an ink pen because some stuff going to come up later on. Uh, uh-huh. If you have on the company's clo- clothes, have your wife bring you some <laughs> clothes and even leave those there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it not waste time and money with this. I mean, you know, right. people are getting paid to look through this stuff. I don't I don't understand it. I really don't.
1: Yeah, John. Thanks, Nicole. Well, you, you know, you're right. I mean, I, may, maybe we're going to see a sea change in this stuff nowadays. Um, and again, it, people made a really big, the, the, the Trump haters made a really big deal of this and and Trump is his own worst enemy in many cases, and I've said that all along. I don't think there was criminal intent here, but once they knew they had these documents, I, I think Trump made a mistake by kind of digging in his heels and not just saying, look, go through everything we have, get it back to him, and, and put this aside. And then you have Biden who, because he thinks he can score political points, he jumps on this self-righteously says, well, I can't believe he has it. And now it turns out Biden's got this stuff scattered all all over. And that's Sometimes in our in our in our rush to politicize this stuff, I guess, and as rush to say, oh, Trump needs to get indicted, or Biden needs to get indicted, or or whatever we or impeached or or whatever we we lose sight of what the real issue is, which is that that they have these classified documents that there that, that nobody seems to know they have and that's to me that the thing that, that's just kind of mind-blowing not that the president of the United States has access to classified documents but these documents that are given to them are not kept track of a- at all and there's no chain of custody on them, so we'll, we'll find out again who you you could you know you could probably go down to Plains, Georgia. That's the honest to god truth. And you could probably like go through the Jimmy Carter's barn or whatever. And my guess is you might find you know you might find an old cardboard box that's kind of got mildew on it, and that might have some records from the Biden from the Carter administration. So maybe that's the big takeaway of all this: that if if we think elected officials when they leave office walking away with classified documents is a big deal and and I agree it is maybe the big takeaway of all this should be we need to have a system of more accountability Instead, so we know what documents officials have, and, you know, we know what happens to those documents. Are they shredded? Are they returned? Whatever. There needs to be some sort of accountability. As for Joe Biden saying he's got no regrets about the way he handled these documents, you know, Biden is his own worst enemy, too. I mean, by, by... by, by jumping on the Trump thing because he thought he could make cheap political points and going on 60 Minutes, he beclowns himself when it turns out that, that he's got the documents. And then to go on and say, I have no regrets... Oh, come on, Mr. President, you've got no regrets. You find these different documents, and then it's the drip, drip, drip. Well, we found some more documents. We found some more documents. Do I think Biden should be impeached or indicted? No. Do I think Trump will be indicted over this? Absolutely not. Do I think Mike Pence should be indicted? Absolutely not. But maybe if, again, we're looking for some positive thing to take away from this, maybe that is we need to do a much better job of tightening up you know where these documents you know come from and what is the chain of custody and how are they kept track of and you know what do you do with them once they're, they're done because as i was saying earlier we've got a couple texts to this point uh, you know for for people who work in the government and have access to classified documents you don't just get to walk out with them and you certainly don't get to quit and take away folders of with those it's just not the way it works so why should it work that way for former presidents all right when we come back we're switching gears after the top of the hour news no shirt no shoes no conservative views no Service. I'll tell you a story about that. M&Ms finds themselves in the culture war, and the job market for remote workers is shrinking. What are you going to do? All that comes out in a couple minutes. The third hour of the Wagner Show starts right after the top of the hour news.
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's
1: WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. I've been waiting all day to discuss this particular issue with you. As a general rule, if you are the owner of a business, you can discriminate. And, and what do you mean? You can, you can discriminate? Yeah. You, you can discriminate for any reason or no reason, just as long as it's not an illegal Reason that that's kind of the way it works. You you can't deny. For example, you you have the rule. Okay, I, you got to wear a shirt. Or in, in our dining establishment, you have to wear a sport coat for men. Gentlemen have to wear a sport coat and a tie. You can have that rule. And as long as you apply that rule fairly, as long as you say, okay, well, I, I'm going to, you know, this type of, of male, if, if it's a white male, I doesn't have to apply the tie rule, but if it's a black male, you've got to wear the tie. Okay, well then you have problems because then you're discriminating based on race. But if the rule is applied evenly across the board, like I say, you can discriminate um, as long, for any reason or no reason, as long as it's not an illegal reason. OK, you also have the right to have certain rules and regulations. No shirt, you know, no shoes, no service. All right. No problem. As long as you enforce that rule across the board, well, you, you are going to be fine. Which brings me to this story of something that happened Saturday down in North Miami Beach. And, and maybe you've maybe you've seen this story. Uh, Gianno Caldwell is a conservative black commentator on Fox News. And so maybe you've seen him before. He and a group of friends goes out to brunch last weekend, and they go to this restaurant called Paradise Paradise Books and Bread in North Miami. And I get the idea that this is kind of like one of these hip and trendy spots, I mean, kind of like a Panera Bread or something like that. So he he's a conservative. He's there with a number of his friends. This is... Business is—it's a co-op. It was started by like like five people. So he's there, he's eating, and as as often happens, you see, when I go out to eat, I try to avoid talking politics, just because it's what I do for a living. But he's apparently he's with his friends, and they're they're having a discussion of, about politics, and they're talking about things like Roe versus Wade and the like. And it's a relatively small place, and apparently other people overhear what what they're saying. So at the end of the meal one of the owners comes up and says okay um our we we were able to hear you you know and other people were able to hear you as well and they say you know we were listening to this and you're going to need to leave our establishment you know you're need you're going to need to go because we um, this is a safe space and the things you were talking about were offensive to some of our other patrons and so you know they they get essentially tossed out now they had their meal they were served but they were then told to leave. So he goes public and he says I was thrown out of this particular restaurant. The restaurant's account, this is what they put on Instagram, says the group arrived, ordered food, sat in the inside corner of the establishment, said they talked loudly and that the conversation was troubling to some of their employees and the customers. According to the cafe statement, the group spoke about women in degrading ways and used eugenic arguments around their thoughts on Roe versus Wade. Eugenics is the idea that you get a superior population by breeding. You know, if you if you breed certain types of people and they get together and they have children, you'll have a superior type. That's what eugenics is. The statement continues. Once it was clear they were finished with their meal, we told them that our views don't align and that the language they were using, and I don't they weren't obscene but again they didn't they didn't like what they were saying we told them the language they were using was unwelcome in our space so they they ended up tossing them out so you get an idea of what's what's going on here he then goes public with this and what what's happened since then, is once he goes public with this, the restaurant is just ripped on, on social media. I mean, the response in general is not positive, And they've said, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to take our winter break sooner than we normally is. Or we're we're going to be closed for the next few weeks. Um, okay, our number. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now I think this story is interesting from a number of reasons. And I guess this and this is where I want to start. Were the cafe owners within their rights by telling these people get out? You know, we, you know, we you've the language you've used, the thoughts that you have expressed the concepts that you've had are offensive to some of our patrons, and again, I, this isn't a situation where they were being obscene or anything like that. That's that's not what happened. They're just they're talking about Roe versus Wade from a perspective of yeah, the Supreme Court was right to strike it down, and they're talking about you know conservative things there, You know, I mean, it, it would be the equivalent of saying I just think Donald Trump was the greatest president in the world, and I think all this other stuff is, is hooey, or I think Biden's incompetent or whatever. They were clearly having a conservative-related conversation. Other people could overhear it. The restaurant owners were offended and appalled by that, and they told them to get out after they had finished their meal. All right, were the restaurant owners within their rights, do you think, by asking people to leave? And then was the re- reaction they, that they got when the guy goes public with this, the reaction that they got where all these people saying, well, I'm never going to eat there again. I mean, was that over the top? Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. This is one. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and then we'll have the conversation in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 855 616 one six twenty. Okay, so that's the story. If you're just tuning in, guy on Fox News who happens to be black, I don't know that that's relevant to the story, but he, he kind of makes a point of that, goes into this sort of hip and trendy cafe in Miami on Saturday with a couple of his friends, has a conversation, and he's talking about conser- things, issues from a conservative perspective. Other people can overhear them. After they finished eating, the one of the owners comes up and tosses them out, saying, "This is a safe space. We were offended and appalled by some of the comments that you were making, and you're not welcome here." All right, was the cat? And then the, the, the Fox News commentator that goes public with this, and the cafe is just getting ripped on the internet for tossing people out because of their political views. All right, who's wrong here? Who's right? Or is it complicated? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's start with Steve in uh, Greendale. Steve, you're on WTMJ.
4: Yes. Hi, Jeff. Um, my take on this is basically that I think they reacted much too fast, too quickly, too abruptly to throw them out. I would have taken one of them in a private area, not in front of customers, and said, you, "You're welcome to stay here for the duration, you know, today." But know in the future that uh, this is a safe space and We prefer, you know, different dialogue here in our restaurant. So please know that for the future. But I would have not thrown them out initially
1: without a warning. Do you think, okay, so let's say they do do what you've done. They say, we prefer that you not come back. And the guy says, well, what do you mean I prefer I would not come back? Are you telling me that you, just that the mere fact that I, I have ideas that are different than you, that's sufficient for you to not want to serve me? I mean, then, no, the no, actually, so.
4: what I'm saying is the opposite. I, I mean, the warning would be that please know for the future, we would love to have you back, but please limit your dialogue to things other than what you've spoken about. And uh, just so they okay. know what the atmosphere should be in the
1: future. Okay. So you think the... You think the so to, I'm not putting words in your mouth. So you think the cafe owner no. was right to... It would be right to say, don't come back here if you're going to have this conversation. You know, you could talk about movies or something else, but if you're going to talk politics, we don't agree with your politics, so you're not welcome here. You think he was within his rights to do that?
6: Well,
4: I don't think so, no. I really don't. I mean, you know, freedom of speech is one of our rights. So, yeah unless there's signs posted that says, you yeah. know, you know, limit your dialogue to any non-political th- or to political things or whatever, then, you, you know, you've warned them. But um, how do they know? How would they know? Or unless right. you post something or tell somebody. So I, I totally think they were uh, abruptly uh, thrown out okay. without real, real cause.
1: Okay, thanks for the call, Steve. I appreciate it. 855-616-1620. Jeff, the restaurant owner picked this fight and have every right to. The customers have every right to patronize or not patronize the restaurant. The restaurant owner picked the hill to die on. Not too bright, but it is his right. Jeff, I'm a liberal, but the restaurant was wrong. It was a private conversation, and they had every right to have it. Jeff, people need to get over themselves um, and by the way, mind your own blanking business and not worry about other people what they're talking about. This is America. I thought we were a country built on different opinions and ideas. A business like that should go out of business. Yeah, and I do want to make the distinction. This isn't. This isn't a situation. And I think I'm. I'm trying to fairly describe this. This isn't like you've got the, the loudmouth Louise in the corner, and every third word is a word that you can't say on the radio or something like that. This is. This is they were talking loud enough to be overheard but it was the concepts they were talking about that that again of offended them. Jeff, you'd think a spa- safe space would allow for all views to be expressed without opposition, safe for only one type of thought. Jeff, I think the restaurant has the right to ask them to leave. However, everyone else has the right to uh, give them static over it. He didn't say static, but I'll change it to that. Like you say, elections have consequences. So does kicking people out of your restaurant. The population will make the decision with their pocket book. Jeff, from how you described it, it sounds like the business had the right to ask them to leave respectfully. Hopefully the business didn't try to judge them in conversation or attempt to counterpoint in the process. I'm conservative. and would not like to be told to leave over my beliefs, but it's their right. I know where I am not appreciated. Jeff, my family's been in restaurants where adults are using terrible language next to our table. We have younger kids. We don't complain. We just get up and leave. No need to start a bunch of trouble. You cannot control other People, uh, Jeff. I think if they wanted to exercise the ability to have them removed, it needs to be done well before they finish the meal. Additionally, probably need a sign indicating what you're allowed to talk to. Jeff. I think the restaurant was wrong. No one should be thrown out for expressing any political views. But why was he talking loud enough for anyone besides the person he was with to hear him? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the layout of this restaurant looks like, but it's not. I go to restaurants all the time and you're sitting at a table and you can't pretty much help but overhear the conversation that, that's going on with other tables. And I suspect that some of these people, especially if he was recognized because they did identify him as a Fox News commentator, apparently somebody came up and asked that. So they were kind of honed in on this. OK, so what is my take on this? And and hear me out here, but I'll, I'll tell you how I work through this. I started out the conversation by saying that as a business owner, you have the right to decide who you want to serve. You can discriminate, and as long as you are, again, not doing it for an illegal reason. You know, you, you have to, if you, you can't, you, you, if you can't throw somebody out because, uh, you know, the, the whole list of things, whether it be race or whether it be gender or because of their religion or or whatever. You, you can't do that. Um, also, what you have to keep in mind is, well, a number of people are talking about the First Amendment, the First Amendment, that says government, free speech, it's government, it says government shall do nothing to interfere, you know, with, with that right. But this isn't government. This is a private business. So, long story short, I think the restaurant owner has the right to go in and say, I- I'm sorry, I am offended by what you are saying, I do not want your business. I think they have the legal right to do that. And as somebody who is a a conservative, I guess, would I like that if I'm in a restaurant and somebody comes up and says, oh, you're that guy from the radio. You know, we we listen to the stuff. We know you've been on the air for 25 years, and we just think, you know, what you say is terrible, and we won't want you here. Do you have a right to say that? I, I think as a business owner, you probably do. Now, the flip side of that is that there are consequences for that. And so, if the consequence is you're telling this man that you don't want him in there because you are offended by his, his attitude, his environment, the things he's saying, uh, that, that's okay. But then you as the business have to live with the consequences of it. And in this particular case, the consequence is the guy goes public with this. He said, this is what happened. I was talking about this. They threw me out. And so, that's, you know, that's not the kind of publicity that I think that you would want if you are the the business owner. I mean, unless you're now going to say, OK, my restaurant is only going to cater to, you know, the, the liberal, the, you know, the, the liberal elite of of North Miami. If If you want to limit your audience to those type of people. I think you have a right to do it because I don't think that p- political view is protected in that sense. But then you got to understand these are going to be the consequences. They're going to go public, and you're going to have all sorts of people that say, "I'm never going to come to your establishment," and I'm going to encourage other people not to come to the establishment. So I, I look at this and I think, okay, they they had they had the right to do that, but at the same time, then you got to live with the consequence of this, and the consequence is, all right. You're, you're going to get nasty comments about this, and you're going to get, well, I mean, in Florida, you know, the, which is an overwhelmingly Republican state, you know, you're going to get blowback from the majority of the population that probably doesn't agree with your positions, and if you want to set up, okay, this is, we, we can only talk about current events from one particular perspective, and those are the only people that I want in here, fine, you can do it, I just wouldn't expect you to be surprised if you go out of business. At least that's how I see it. Back with more in just a couple of minutes. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I think it's a publicity stunt. Nothing more, nothing less. Remember a couple of years ago, it was actually 2018, uh, IHOP, International House of Pancakes, announced that they were going to be changing their name to the uh, IHOP, International House of Burgers, And then there was all this, this, this commotion. And as a matter of fact, I think even, I think I even did a segment on this or something. And, and then, you know, they they did it for a week or so. And then they went back to IHOP. It was just, it was an effort to get free publicity and attention. And with the emphasis on free, hey, we're changing our name and everybody, oh, I can't believe they're doing this and getting away from pancakes and it's not going to work, etc. Well, they never intended to do it for anything other than a couple of days, but they wanted to get that free media. They wanted to get people discussing it. And it wasn't. It, at least the reason they talked about, well, you know, we want to highlight our burgers and we're moving there, it 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 was really, it was just an effort to get people talking about IHOP, and and it worked. I mean, I think that's great. When you can figure out ways to get free publicity, as a general rule, it's good. Now, that's different than, like, there's their old statements, the old saying that there's no... There's no such thing as bad publicity. I'm here to tell you um, that the only people who say that are people who've never had bad publicity. But, but in general, okay, you're a business. You're trying to get attention. This business in North Miami Beach that we were just talking about, well, they're getting all sorts of publicity. I, it's, most of it's not good, and it's not going to be good for their business, but that, that's the way it goes. So what's the story that I think is the publicity stunt? M&M's. Now, maybe you, you've been following this or not. M&M's claims to have found itself embroiled in the culture war. Now, M&M candy. Jeff, the culture war, M&M candy. Now, think about what, what does M&M's do to you know, advertise? And I mean, I can remember when I was a kid, the, the, the slogan for M&M's used to be melts in your mouth, not in your hands. I remember that. And they, you know, but lately, who have been the spokespeople for M&M's? Well, they've used, think about it, they've used these like cartoon figures. They're, they're spokes candies, right? And they have these, these different ads featuring the the, the different candies. And I, I actually think that they're kind of clever. Well, okay, according to M&M's, M&M, which it's actually Mars Wrigley is the company that, that makes M&M's, they say, well, there, there's been a, this controversy that's there because about a year ago, they started I don't know. Redoing some of the the characters. The green M M&M, and M, um, which is a female M M&M, and M, had um, heels. And what they did is they they changed the heels to flats. And the uh, brown M M&M, and M, who used to wear stilettos, they moved. She now has smaller heels. Okay, and this. Um, in, in some of the weird portions of the internet, this generated controversy about M and M's. M um, and M's going woke, and the idea that their um, their their spokes candies, which after all are cartoons, their spokes candies, they were um, being you know desexualized, and that this was all woke. Okay, so. M&M's, I'm going to read you the story out of USA Today. M&M's announced Monday that it is putting its iconic characters on a, quote, indefinite pause and replacing them with actress Maya Rudolph after a controversy following its mascot makeover last year. The brand said it didn't expect uh, the changes to their spokes candies, the colorful m M&M and mascots, would break the Internet. Noting that even a candy's shoes can be polarizing. In the last year, we made some changes to our beloved spokes candies. We weren't even sure if anyone would notice, and we definitely didn't think it would break the internet. Um, So what they're saying is because of all this controversy, we're going to retire them for a while. And we are confident Ms. Rudolph will champion the power of fun to create a world where everyone feels they belong and say that Ms. Rudolph will be starring in the brand's upcoming Super Bowl campaign and will assume the role of chief of fun, using her humor and captivating personality to help the brand um, build its mission. Um, So they're... They're saying, okay, because a couple of changes that we made to the Spokes candies drew some comments on the Internet, we're now putting these, these candies away, and, and we're going to use Maya uh, Rudolph. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. I smell a public relations stunt here. If M and M's had simply said, "Oh, we've got these Super Bowl candy, we've got the Super Bowl ads that's coming out, and we're using, you know, this former Saturday Night Live actress, and she's going to, you know, be doing these," it, it wouldn't have generated much response at all. But by saying, "Okay, we're now going to, because of all the controversy that we have created by giving a couple of these candies, um, I don't know, one's not in stiletto heels anymore," by doing this. We've created all this controversy, and um, so we, we have to put them on the shelf. No, I, I think what's going to happen is M and M's, at an appropriate time, probably sooner rather than later, will then bring back these spokes candies with great f- um, publicity and saying, "Look, okay, we've heard you; we've we've brought them back." I think this is a publicity stunt, nothing more. Which doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad, it's just it's not because, you know, they're getting some criticism for these characters being woke in some corners of the internet, it's just I think some marketing guy or gal somewhere said, this is a great opportunity to get free publicity. I have in my hand a story about this that ran today in the Wall Street Journal. I've got a story about this that today ran in the New York Times. And as I said earlier, story in USA Today. If they had simply said, hey, we've hired... Um, Maya Rudolph, to be our spokesperson, it wouldn't have gotten any attention at all. But because they say, we've gotten criticism for turning our characters into woke figures, and so we're going to dial it down, they now get themselves free publicity in these major publications, and they get themselves a segment on my show, 855-616-1620. All right, I just think this is a publicity stunt. Nothing more, nothing less. And as publicity stunts go... Well, it's worked. I mean, it got them the pieces in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I don't think M and M's has any intention of rechanging the candies or giving up on the candies. It's just they want to try something new, and this is a great excuse to get them free publicity. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. So very glad to have you with us. Look, I, I, I don't, I don't believe. Mars Wrigley M and M's for a minute on this, and I'm, I'm but it, it's I, I can see it. It's it's brilliant marketing. So they've used the the M M&M and M candy characters for for years and years. So they, they redesigned a couple of them, and uh, again, it, it created a little bit of controversy in some kind of tiny part of, of the Internet. Um, I don't think one of our texters says, Jeff, people aren't offended. The store in Times Square is always jam-packed. People love the characters. I would say the same thing about the place in, in Las Vegas. You go to an m M&M store, it's just packed all the time. But Eminem says, well, you know, we, we've gotten some, we, we busted the internet when we you know, redesigned a couple of, of the candy. So what we're going to do is, you know, we, we don't want that controversy anymore. So we're going to put aside the, the candy characters and we're going to hire Myra Rudolph and, and she's going to be the fun person for a while. I, I, let, let's let's understand what's going on. This isn't about this isn't about the internet controversy at all. It's marketing, plain and simple. They call this earned media. You know, there, there's two ways you can get attention in the media: you can buy ads, or you can do something and you can come out with this reason. Oh, here we broke the internet. You know, we we don't want to be controversial, so we're going to retire these candies, and so then you get all these free stories that are out there. That's what this is, pure and simple. And my guess is sooner rather than later. The Spokes Candies are going to make this triumphant return, and M&M's is going to be laughing all the way to the bank because they got all this news coverage that is out there. 855-616-1620. Um, Jeff, Planters tried something similar a couple years back when they killed Mr. Peanut in a Super Bowl commercial. He is still on the labels, though. Um... Yes, Jeff, who cares if it's a publicity stunt? Whatever makes you money, capitalism at its best. Okay, see, that's... I think right. I'm just identifying it as a publicity stunt. I don't think this is. It's so interesting. You read these stories, and people are taking it seriously. They're taking face value. Oh, the company says, "Well, we did this because we didn't think we were going to create all this controversy." And you know, we had some people that were you know upset because we changed the shoes and things like that. <laughs> that that's not the driving factor. At least the way I see it, at all in this decision, the operative factor is, hey. We can, we can take a break from these characters. We can get all this free attention to, you know, our, our new Super Bowl ads and stuff. That's worth millions of dollars in and of itself. And then when we bring back, when we bring back the characters, oh, people are going to love it, and they're going to just applaud us. Jeff, as always, I totally agree with you. However, I think it's a brilliant idea. I, I, it is, in fact, a brilliant idea. I, and because it's it's worked. It's getting these different stories. The reason I point out it's a publicity stunt, though, is because I think there is a tendency for people to get worked up over things. and And this is one where if you take the story at face value, you will have people who will be saying... I can't believe that you had these people who were so worked up about candies and that they got everybody so upset that the company had to shift its gear, well, uh, that they shift shift its focus and hire somebody new. That, that's not what this is all about. The company didn't care about it. The flip side is, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that um, M&M's um, were, would do this in the first place. And, and, yeah, isn't it great that we were able to kick up such a stir that we forced the change from M&M's? None of that is true none of that is what happened this is just hey this is a great opportunity we can switch our advertising campaign and we can essentially um, get the money that's there that's going for this um, Jeff, uh, let's see, eight five five six one six. Jeff, you've got way too much time on your hands if you find M&M characters polarizing so many other things that are out there. Yes, yeah, I, I agree. That's why I don't think that there's really that many people who found the M&M characters to be polarizing Jeff, seriously, now we're criticizing candy characters? Pass the pro. Ibupro- and I feel a headache coming on. I absolutely love M&M so I get they get some common sense and just do what's best, make delicious candy. Yeah, that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to make the delicious candy and they're going to get all sorts of free advertising from this. So, my message on this story is when when you see when you when you hear about this and you see it, don't get worked up over oh, like this is the the, the woke Eminem characters and Eminem is giving in to the the people on the internet, or the flip side being, gee, you know, Eminems is Eminems, you know, they they needed to stand up to these people. That's again just look. You know, pull back the curtain, you know, that's like the Wizard of Oz. Don't pay any attention to the man behind the curtain and understand what's really going on here. This is like killing off Mr. Peanut. This is like the International House of Burgers. This is, at least in my opinion, an effort to get some free publicity. And it's an effort to get some free publicity that that absolutely worked. Hey, one final story before we turn it over to uh, John and Sandy. Uh. The Senate today, this might be another definition of of having too much time on your hands. The United States Senate today, and maybe you'll see some of these highlights on, on TV this evening, are going to be grilling Ticketmaster's top executives over the Taylor Swift concert debacle. This was the one where there was a limited number of tickets to Taylor Swift, and yet ten times as many people tried to buy it, and essentially they had to suspend sales, and all these people who couldn't get Taylor Swift tickets were upset. It's now at the point that Congress is going to be holding hearings into why not everybody who wanted to buy Taylor Swift tickets could buy Taylor Swift tickets. At some point in time, you say, okay, not everything needs to be the subject of a federal investigation. Does it? I mean, maybe the Senate can go back to doing important stuff like, I don't know, figuring out how classified documents get into the hands of senators after they leave office. And nobody apparently knows. Okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's find out what John McCure and Sandy Max have on their minds for Wisconsin's afternoon news.